Welcome to Only Real Fans. I'm your host, Brian Riley, along with Dylan Bentlodge. And on today's episode, Dylan and I are going to talk about John Hughes. Specifically, we'll be taking a look at his movies, National Lampoon's Vacation, 16 Candles, Some Kind of Wonderful, and She's Having a Baby. Stick around, it's going to be a good one. Yeah. So yeah, no, I mean, it is really, dif- it's difficult trying to find the place that you want to do the uh, the recordings. Like back in college, we used to do it underneath blankets. Like I remember Mathis having me go underneath a blanket with her to do all these like, which Ooh. sounds horrible, but <laughs> no, it was to do all the recordings in this like movie she was making because you need basically a vacuum. And that's obviously not us and why our audio recording is always changing. So we apologize. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I remember back in the the rapping days, we well, I did it in in my dorm room, but we had a uh, like one of those screens in front of the microphone that you see in like a studio that's supposed to prevent uh, or lessen the amount of um, like breathing and noise that the mic picks up. Depending on how close you were, it worked pretty well. I mean, that's what those like the the foam thing over the mic as well are doing yeah so it's like a double layer i mean like we've already talked about this but when we have a bit more money and a bit more uh, i mean what's the word i'm looking for kind of repetition with it like just constant all the time i'd rather have like a room dedicated to it with the proper like mic that i can plug into my computer it could be a usb it doesn't have to be xlr but just something better with a with a mouth guard because you're just going to get better quality and you don't have to do that much editing right you know Exactly. So yeah, to all our fans out there, it is sometimes very difficult for me and Brian to get these out to you on time because we have to put in a little bit more work because <laughs> we're still working DIY style. Well, that's the so. trend now, especially with musicians. Be DIY. Do it in your closet. Do it in your house. No studio. No nothing. It's all about the repetition, man. Yeah. So this is, this is going to be a weird one though, because it's just me and you. So I feel like the tendency for us is to go all over the place instead (laughs) of actually talking about any of the movies that we watched. You know who likes to go all over the place? John Hughes. Let's talk about that guy. (laughs) (laughs) Really organic there, bro. Nice job. (laughs) So why did you pick this month? I mean, we always ask that question, but yeah, I mean, it's a good one. You mean, why did I pick John Hughes? I picked this month because it happened to be my month. (laughs) Uh, yeah, why'd you pick John Hughes? Uh, well, no, a few months back we we talked about him over the phone a little bit. How we really liked like a lot of his classics and his just general style. Uh, and it just it's one of those like he's someone who is very much so the '80s and especially like truly captured at least what the people from the '80s say. Truly captured what it was like to be a teenager back then and as well as just general, like, good coming-of-age stories. And it's, uh, with his style and his uh, his sense of humor, it's not that, you know, it's one of those often imitated, hardly replicated um, styles. And we just had a, we both had mm-hmm. a fond appreciation over him. I was like, well, why don't we dive into some some classics that we either have seen before or, have, or saw them a long time ago, and a couple, like, hidden gems. Yeah, his movies are kind of like a time capsule, man. It's really strange. I remember the first time I watched Breakfast Club, I think I was 
15. They're I was like roughly around the age of the kids in the in the movie, right? Mm. But it is it's equal parts distant, like it feels very very long time ago, but also relevant if that makes sense. It really feels like a time capsule. Like just shows you what the 80s must have been like. Kind of like what Link later does with Dazed and Confused and and everybody wants him, but he's doing it years later. So he's trying to make it feel like that. And John Hughes just did that by actually making it in the time yeah. super relevant. Right. And I just, Very I've always wondered feeling, like actually. what, what about like what drew him to doing that and how he did it so well, you know, cause there's so many people, especially nowadays who try to do that. They try to go back to high school. They try to go to like, even like middle school and they just, they miss the mark or they try too hard, whether it's like they're trying to be up to date and trying to be hip. Um, like, Hey, you fellow kids. I'm yeah, cool. Or it's just, or it's just like the, it's just the same story. And like a lot of times you, you have the same story happen like 12 times and then maybe one or two of them is impactful. Like I would say super bad and book smart are not that crazy of stories, but they're the ones that are just doing it the best. But like arguably drill bit Taylor, which is a John Hughes film is technically produced. the same fucking story. I don't think produced he wrote John it. Hughes, he produced so. it. No, 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 no. But you know my point, right? Is right. They're not that original. Or, and I don't want to say that they're not good. They're just not original ideas. Like high school, last night, party. Like right. That's pretty much half the high school mu- movies you see. And some of them land and some of them just kind of feel like the obligatory high school film. And I wonder if it's the era too. So like... We don't know the 80s, but we appreciate it. So looking back on a film mm-hmm. that apparently encompasses the 80s, do we appreciate that more than one that's trying to be like that is of our era about our era? Because, you know, we can relate to like the I main wonder, themes, but we can't always relate to the course of events. I wonder if we're ever going to have movies like that about the 2000s. Probably. I mean, like we, we probably would will. Super bad. But and Booksmart or Booksmart's more of like no, the 2010s, but like super bad. It, it was written while Seth Rogen was in high school, but like it was certainly took place in 2007 during the two thousands. No, of course. But I mean like more can, um, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm not smart today for some reason. I haven't, I, I can't think of the words I need, uh, opposite of contemporary, like what Jonah Hill did with mid nineties. Yeah. So a movie that's made nostalgic. today about the past nostalgic yeah nostalgic would be the best way to put it um what link later does right about the 70s and the 80s and then what like what jonah hill did with mid 90s which we, i really kind of want to see i've never seen it but it looks amazing we do we do get um, that actually wonder, already we do yeah um well lady like lady bird it's not intentionally supposed to be nostalgic but it certainly is very much so a, a movie that takes place in the 2000s for high school a lot of the music that's played and whatnot and this like yeah but i still think that's different setting your movie in the 2000s is not the same thing as making a movie about the 2000s like, i guess that's true oh there's a there's a new show on called uh, mid 90s that's fair there's a show on hulu i haven't seen yet called pen 15 or penis and the um it's about these two girls so the the two creators of the show are playing themselves as like seventh or eighth grade versions of themselves going through middle school and like that awkward age, something that sounds like it shouldn't be good, but apparently like their performances and the course of events throughout it are actually like done very well where it works What's really it called? well. Um, pen 15 or penis. Um, but that one takes place in the two thousands. Like everything about it is in this 
from what I've read, is a nostalgic uh, 2000s. You kind of you kind of cut out when you said that. So all I heard was pen for penis, and I don't want to tell you what I just found when I googled that. <laughs> Did you try <laughs> Pen Fifteen TV show? Oh, pen 15. I missed the 15. So I just typed in pen for penis oh. and some weird <laughs> shit came up. Did you go to pen Island? Pen 15, pen 15 penis. No, it's pen 15. That's it. That's the name of it. I'm just letting you know that that meant that's supposed to mean penis. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm Googling the whole which, one. I'm making which myself is certainly from my age right now, which really is like a two thousands, like middle school joke like i know so many yeah. people like so many of my friends would write that and think they're hilarious for doing it but i guess i guess what like what john hughes is doing is making movies that are so contemporary that they become nostalgic so it's like super bad like super bad is a movie that's really contemporary about the time that it's taking place in and then you know, when you watch it 15 years later you're like this movie represents what the 2000s was like yeah. You know, the same thing, like accepted, accepted was another version of that. Uh, like the college movie, great like, movie, great film. Um, not as iconic, I guess, but I really enjoyed it. And the reverse, the reverse of that, I guess like the modern day, the modern day, like John Hughes or not like the same, but would probably be like Judd Apatow who made a bunch of movies through the two thousands that were really about the two thousands. And if you want to get a feeling for what, like the late nineties, early two thousands where you could go watch undeclared or freaks and geeks or super bad or any True. of that shit. And you would really get a feeling for what it was like growing up then. But well, maybe not freaks and geeks though, because freaks and geeks takes place in like the eighties or seventies. Oh yeah. You're right. You're right. Undeclared you though. Yeah. I forgot that. I would definitely say undeclared falls under there. Undeclared is great, man. Undeclared was, I, I really loved it because it showed a Charlie Hunnam in a different time. And I, oh, you know, yeah. I always Charlie forget, I always forget he's in that. Yeah. Like, and he's funny, dude. He's really funny. And an early, early Jay Burrett show who I've always liked. He was supposed to be the British dude in forgetting Sarah Marshall. It wasn't supposed to be Russell Brand, but he had to cut, he had to go out because of uh, Sons of Anarchy, I think, or something he was doing at the time. And I'm not saying Russell Brand didn't do a great job. Right. Russell Brand is, he's a, he's he a made comedic that role. improv. Yeah. Yeah. He's a comedic improv type of dude. If you watch the behind the scenes, it's hilarious that he's just making shit up. But I would have liked to see what uh, Hunnam would have done with it. I would have just enjoyed to see how Hunnam would have portrayed that whole character. Would have liked him to use his iconic Cockney accent um, from <laughs> Green Street Hooligans. <laughs> I, iconically one of the worst cockney accents of all time like, like it's how so does bad a, how does a you know how does a british man fuck that up you know i feel like he'd been around it at some point that's like saying though like how we would like fuck up boston you know mm. like and we would i if guess we tried it like if because it's so not everyone's good at accents just, no and you would probably just try to exaggerate it because that's how we talk like going to boston actually going like have a yad and khakis is like not the actual accent but if you tried that in a movie that was supposed to be like imagine playing whitey boulder like that johnny depp role <laughs> but you were just doing like the for 15 fucking minutes like and you're like dude oh my god you sound horrifying <laughs> you sound like a nasally new yorker what's wrong with you <laughs> What did you marinate, marinate this steak with? <laughs> like, that would just be terrible, man. Um, 
But yeah, Hanum did not handle that well. Ironically, he turned out to be so good at the American accent that he forgot his original accent. Oh, did you yeah. ever read about that? I did. He had to like go get coaching to get it back. <laughs> That's wild. Talk that about, is wild. Talk about method acting at its finest. I think, well, I mean, how long was Young Sons of Anarchy for? It was it seven or eight seasons, right? Something like that. I think seven seasons. I think it was from 2008 to 2014. I love that show. It was really good. Um, and he was fantastic in it. But anyways, we're, we're totally off topic <laughs> at this point. Going back to Hughes. As we warned. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about, I was thinking about him though, man, kind of like, um, in, in the same vein as Trumbo. Did you ever see that movie Trumbo? No. Oh, is that the with one Brian with Brian Cranston? Uh, yeah, with Brian Cranston. No, I haven't seen that. Oh, he's like a really famous screenwriter who like banged out scripts left and right and like used pseudonyms because of like the blacklist, I think it was called during like the, the hunt down for communists. Mm-hmm. But it reminded me slightly of John Hughes because I was also reading up that like Hugh, Hughes just like finished movies over weekends, dude. And we both have tried writing, but like that's essentially just a word vomit draft that be is so good that it's your first draft. You yeah. know, I know it's, I, I can never imagine doing that. Cause like, you know, all of his stuff, yeah. they're all relatively sure. I think but like a lot, the longest one was probably like an hour 40 or so, but like, it's mm-hmm. still, it's still like either can technically sure movies, but it's still banging out 90 pages at, at least a weekend. Like, that's crazy. Well, it could also be a little bit less. I'm really sensitive to this because I find that when they teach you a script is uh, a page a minute, it's kind of dangerous because you're trying to lengthen your script to 90 at least because that's a standard movie. But when I was writing like scripts with Simon, I was doing research about movies that I wanted to emulate, like films that I thought were kind of in the similar vein. You know, it's for the one we did. uh, We were writing before. I won't say the name on it now because it's not going to happen for a while. Um. (laughs) But I was like looking up scripts like uh, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, which is a two hour film. All right. It's so like an hour 56. The script is 80 pages. Oh. But the pacing is kind of really slow. And I think there's a there's a style and like specifically Mac- McDonough and kind of relative to Hughes as well as minimalist style. And like they're not overwriting to get the page numbers. Like actually, like everything you see is like just cutting to the point. I think some people may get bogged down in making it longer when it's not necessary. Like, oh, I'm short here. I should write more shit. That's not necessarily true. If it's just good, just cut out all the shit. Like, you know? Yeah. Um, right. And I was, I wanted to ask them because I was thinking about this, but do you think like that makes John Hughes a better storyteller than he was a writer? Because I'm sure there was many rewrites of his scripts while they were in pre-production. But he, I don't see him as being the person that was so married to the dialogue you know, like, mm. you know, like you get writers or like directors like Tarantino that like not a word can be changed or something. I would, yeah. I would assume he's like so particular, but I could see Hughes kind of being more like the overall story. The theme I want to bring out is this theme, this story. So people are actually reading like Home Alone and they're reading the story. But as far as like the actual dialogue or scenes and stuff, I don't think he was ever married enough to it unless like someone pitched a really shit idea. But if someone's like, oh, I can't remember the lines fully. So we're just going to like do this. Um, yeah. I don't see him getting angry. I could definitely see him being more of a, um, a situational writer rather than a dialogue writer. Like a lot of the yeah. the humor is 
for the most part, it's like it's event based or um or like actionable humor. It's kind of like the uh what the Farley brothers, uh like all their <laughs> stuff. I know that it's it's them just kind of being in a room together and be like, you know, it'd be really funny if this happened. And then they like write it down into a script. And I wonder if that's like I, the most, the bulk of like what he would write would be like, it would be really funny if this happened in this movie. That's what I mean. I'm, I feel like I'm on the cusp of an idea, but I haven't really meditated on it enough to like propose a thesis. But my idea would be something like, you have like two types of like filmmakers, like or screenwriters like John Hughes. And one of them is like, that is they're just good storytellers so actually what's written on the page is they're not that married to it you know like you know that you know actually from me that's very much how i write like i just love telling stories so i'm not married to most of the things that actually are written down they can they're malleable as long as the story is pretty much the same right but then you also have writers that are so particular that they're like every word is meaningful. Like they've worked on every single piece and not a single thing can be changed. And I think the difference there is like storytellers versus good writers. You know, you have to, you have to be, a, you have to have good ideas. You have to be an ideasman, but like you can either just be a good storyteller. Like this is a great idea. As long as the themes stay the same, it's great. And then you have writers that are just so unbelievably poetic that they can't <laughs> like separate from a single word. Yeah, I think John Hughes is more, more or less because you can't bang out a four page masterpiece. You're not writing Shakespeare in four days. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, going off that, too, it's like that both sides of that are a gift and a curse in a way, especially when it yeah. comes to like you're so stuck or like glued to what you wrote that you won't change it. Kind of like George Lucas, how, you know, especially with the prequels the dialogue gets dogged on all the time and clearly like no one there you know none of the actors or anything had any any changes they wanted to be made either either they didn't offer them or they knew they couldn't but like you know you think about you think about that right like reading through a script like alec mcginnis was like you gotta you gotta kill me off i can't do this anymore these lines are horrible Um, so like what was that story that you had from your aunt like or your cousin like oh, about like right. the uh for our lovely viewers uh my cousin worked at lucas films throughout the course of the prequels and during i, I would think it was that it was that one of one of the prequel it, it might have been episode one it could have been like two or three but she was there throughout all of them and they at one point, there was a dialogue specialist who was hired to come on, read through the scripts and uh, rewrite them to make the dialogue sharper and just better. And all I know is that George Lucas got those copies and before filming, tossed them out and they stuck to his original because he thought that his word crazy. was bomb. Yeah, that's the best. That's the, not the best. Sorry, that's the worst combination. If you're like someone who is married to their dialogue we'll say or married to their to their script and yet also a horrible writer you know you can't like that's just a bad combination mm-hmm. i think actually be a great combination personally again i'm not saying one's better than another but one that i think i would want to emulate is someone who tends to be a very good writer but also has a lot of ease on his film sets because he's not married to anything if you read up on like christopher nolan for example they talk a lot about how Nolan's really open to opinions and like other people's interpretations of his work. 
and like wants when people ask him the question like how do you want me to read this he usually responds or doesn't usually i've just read up on this like i didn't really think about that what do you think and Mm -hmm. i think something like going back again to hughes is what's so nice about his movies is there's like some sort of relative ease it just so it's just so comforting and easy and enjoyable but i think that comes also from the idea that he didn't seem like someone who was too strict on his films you know just let it flow and right. it be fun because if we're having fun then we're going to make something fun and you even see that with our own personal work like working together and just enjoying it as much as you can and not really like taking anything too seriously makes us always enjoy it i don't want to like get stressed out about our jobs um right and plus like so a, lot of his the films, best this, a lot of his films are about high school you know like you can't be that serious or married to your dialogue when you're having because it's, it's nothing that's it's not necessarily like poetic you know it's it's supposed to be very casual it's supposed to be relatable so if like molly ringwald's yeah. reading the script and it thinks that like this line sounds kind of cheesy or it doesn't come off that well she definitely should have the floor to change it if she wants Absolutely. But again, going back to this is I think that gives this ease to his films. And I think one of my favorite combinations then in a filmmaker is someone that can do both. Like they are truly amazing writers, but they're also open to interpretation. Like that is kind of my, that is my impression of Nolan. That's how he runs his stuff. It's very dialogue based with his actors and crew. And it kind of shows through in his work. I mean, has Nolan even had a flop? Right. Like, is there anything he's done that's not that great? No. His lowest rated movies, like 75 on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, like, yeah, I he might know. have some like, like the- plot holes and stuff, but he never makes a boring movie. It's at the end of no. the day, all this stuff's entertaining. But yeah, that's something that I really admire with Hughes. And that's why every movie that we watch this month, too, like I told you what I thought is. I've seen so many of his movies that I think I've seen the best ones because you know, which ones are the best ones. Right. So these ones obviously are like the second tier. They're not as good. So I don't want to say they let me down, but they, they were except for 16 candles. That is held in high regard as one of his best. Okay. Yeah. Except for 16, except for, uh, except for 16 candles, but the rest of them is more either experimental or generic. I'd say Mm -hmm. to the point where they're, they're good movies, but if you really want to get a good, taste of hues like everyone knows the ones to watch ferris bueller breakfast club uh 16 candles home alone like um these ones the two ones that really kind of shine were probably some kind of wonderful and the i told you this some kind of wonderful and she's having a baby were the best ones yeah for sure and yeah and i agree well i mean i don't want to throw 16 candles into the mix just because that is truly like a, a classic you know um, so I feel like in the ranking system, I don't know. I, I think I enjoyed some kind of wonderful, the, the most out of all of them. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's weird. Cause like, me too. Cause like, I, I always try to think about like when I'm, when I'm ranking someone's work in my own personal opinion, like obviously I have my own opinion, but then I got to think like, well, do I have to rank the classics in their own category and then go to the other stuff? Just, just cause it blows my mind. It blows my mind that what's the guy's name? Eric Stoltz, who plays the lead is when I, when I found out that he was going to be the original back to future dude, I immediately called you because I was like, Oh, this is crazy. And he's also the fucking heroin dealer in Pulp Fiction, which is so funny. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't even realize that. That's just, that's just crazy. 
Yeah, man, that's like, oh man, it, it, I can't even believe it. And it's he still hooks God up with Leah Thompson. That's so crazy to me, dude. I kept saying, I kept th- thinking the whole time that the the girl he's falling in love for, like the really popular girl, was the girl from Breakfast Club. And I was like so psyched to be like, oh, it's all interconnected. You're like, no, dude, that's the chick from Back to the Future. <laughs> Marty's like, mom. Oh. <laughs> what? Yeah, that's Marty's mom. That was going to be his mom. Yeah. I know. That's so funny. But yeah, th- that I movie is I, very I, much so like, if you needed, if you needed to try and describe like John Hughes, but you wanted to show rather than tell, you'd have them watch this movie and be like, all right, for the, like the basic fundamentals and themes that go on in John Hughes movie, watch some kind of wonderful, you get the idea. And then you go from there. I mean, honestly, he recycles those stories too, because for extra credit, I like extra credit. I'm air quoting in case nobody can see this. I'm air quoting. Um, I watch pretty in pink, uh, and that's, that's pretty much just some kind of wonderful, except now it's a female lead who's like dating a popular rich kid, like rich boy instead. When's it's all, um, it's not the pretty exact same, when but did it's that pretty come out, though? I think that came uh, out the know. year before, actually. That's yeah, did, it did. Did that come 86. out before or after six, 86? Yeah. And when some did, kind of wonderful is um, 87. Yeah, I mean, Molly Ringwald was his, like, favorite for, like, I think three consecutive years. Because 16 Candles is the year before Breakfast Club. Yeah. 1984. hmm Yeah, so you get 1984, 5, and 6 just filled with Molly Ringwald. And a little um, Anthony Michael Hall. Yeah. Man, oh, we tried to reach out to him to get him on this podcast, but he never responded to me. I also tried to reach out to <laughs> Kevin Bacon and... They got no response. <laughs> Kevin Bacon's pretty difficult, man. I think like Anthony Michael Hall, like wherever you are out in there, out in the world, bro, like, come on, how busy are you right now? The Dark Knight series ended 10 years ago, and that's the last time I saw you. So, I mean, <laughs> I mean, Kevin Bacon has Nolan, been in a lot oh, since, but I just also Dude, know that play- he, he tries to get as much work as he possibly can after the whole Madoff thing. What Madoff thing? Bernie Madoff. I, you're gonna have to fill me in. I, I know the name, but I don't know. This, oh, the Bernie drama. Madoff was like a notorious Ponzi schemer guy from, um, when like the two the late two thousands. He like did this huge thing. It like cost so many people millions of dollars. Like it all when it all like fell through, and he took all their money. And Kevin Bacon. And how's Kevin Bacon? Kevin Bacon was one of those guys who was intertwined with him, like you know, mate gave him his money. I forget exactly what it is that he did. I think he was supposed to be like a financial manager with like stock investing mm-hmm. and stuff, but he just took people's money. Um, mm. And yeah, so he got swindled by Madoff and he and Kara Sedgwick, his wife lost millions of dollars and it really like set him back. So then from that point on, he tried to get as much work as he possibly could to make up for all that lost fortune which is sad but he, wow, did, end up, he, did, he did end up getting a lot of work since so like it's worked out for him and he's in a new series now i mean on showtime so it's it's very funny that like the game six degrees of separation or six degrees from kevin bacon <laughs> and everybody's like linked to him and i was just thinking like i was just thinking um 
how we were talking about John Hughes and Christopher Nolan. And I'm like, ah, they're not related. So how this is, has nothing to do with the podcast, but Anthony Michael Hall has been in dark Knight and all these John Hughes movies. So it's like once removed, imagine if like Nolan's like, mate, I, f- I love the fucking John Hughes movies from the eighties. It's a pleasure to work with you. Yeah. That's how, no, that's, that's a better that's, Cockney accident. That's how Nolan speaks. <laughs> That's better than Charlie Hummin. Hummin. Yes. Hummin. 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 You sounded like um, Hugh Jackman in The Gentleman. I mean, not Hugh Jackman, uh, Hugh Grant in The Gentleman. Wow, we really, this last two minutes was bad. We just messed up left and right there. <laughs> um, Whoopsie. No, nah, man, but I, don't, I, I never heard about that Bernie Madoff thing. Um, I don't I, you, I, I That was huge when it happened. Robert De Niro started a miniseries about it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, that's kind of crazy. So I'm really pop cultural. Uh, I'm well versed in pop culture, but there's then just always one gap, like something I've never heard of. Um, I don't know if Bernie Madoff's a pop culture, more of a financial tragedy. I mean, if they made a series about it, that's pop culture. Well, fair enough. It's just weird to think that like Um, Justin Bieber and Bernie Madoff could be grouped in the same category. (laughs) That's funny. Um, Did you think, man, watching these, that the the problematic overtones that Luis was talking about um, were like really prevalent? I almost also just said overtones, like the street here in Amsterdam. Like the time I said um, uh, ragtime soldiers instead of ragtag soldiers and this is like did you just say ragtime soldiers (laughs) singing um did you you, uh think um did you think those were still really prevalent uh i think the ones that had the most alarming were vacation and probably 16 candles and yeah i would uh, tend to agree with that I think for 16 Candles, though, it's more like, I mean, like Long Duck Dong, funny character, is played by an an Asian actor, but like he's from Utah. So he was most likely, you know, putting on the accent like he was very much so supposed to be a stereotypical foreign exchange student from uh, Japan. Yeah, I think the problem is the butt of the joke is that he is Asian. That's right, like problem. every time like he enters the room, a gong hits. Like, come on, yeah, that's yeah. But it's like they move the they move the line a lot on those things. I remember reading up on. I'm pretty sure it was downsizing the movie downsizing with Matt Damon. Ooh, like he falls in love with a Vietnamese woman. That it's not worth your time. Um, but is he's falling in love with a Vietnamese woman, and that Vietnamese woman, um puts on a very heavy accent, which she doesn't have. And people gave her a lot of shit for that. But at the same time, it's kind of, you know, it is, it just, they push the line, right? It's different. She, it's not like that. She's making a commentary on the Vietnamese people. It was just the commentary on that. She seemed to be putting on a very stereotypical accent. Mm-hmm. I think the problem is that the time shift is just, it, it outdates, you know, at the time people weren't just as aware enough. I don't know. Right. I don't know what I'm saying. And also like these, um, especially in 80s movies like 80s comedies these types of stereotypes um, outrageous stereotypes were very common like even even weird science it's not even a stereotype it's just more of like a very 
questionable scene is when um, Anthony Michael Hall's character gets drunk at the bar and he's talking in this like really whiny, like drunk voice, but he's also trying to sound like all the black guys who are in the bar with him. And it's just so bizarre. Like I was cringing so hard watching him do that. Doesn't he do, doesn't he do that in, in breakfast club as well? Or is that just him acting weird? Cause he's stoned. I think he's acting weird cause he's stoned. I like, but they the were in I the bar remember, is like, in weird science. They're in the bar, cheeks. like with all these black guys. And he's just like trying to sound exactly like them. And I was like, this isn't right. Chicks cannot hold their smoke. This way. I'll never forget <laughs> that line. Like that's really a funny line. Oh, uh, and then the other thing, seen... uh, the other thing that it, at first glimpse seems like it's really, you know, very bad is in 16 candles face alone (laughs) is when um when jake says to the geek that he can he can like have his girlfriend and like do she's like so drunk he can do whatever he wants to her like that's just like messed up but yeah that's luckily that does not happen you know he doesn't take advantage of her he tries to take her home and be respectful i think they end up hooking up we don't see it it's more like alluded to but like it's never it's, it's very, one of those where it's like it wasn't forced on her in a way like on on his I'm end. pretty sure that again like con- going into the controversy wise is like uh Wonder Woman 1984 had a lot of controversy for a similar type concept that was being played out and they tried to defend it by saying it's taking place in the 80s and this then it therefore it's subjected to 80s rules and I'm like mm, I don't know if that's true like that I mean, if you're going to make a movie that takes place in the 1920s and you cast like white dudes all dressed in blackface, I don't think you're getting away with that. No, like you're just not getting away. Like, that's not the fucking same thing. And in 1980 and Wonder Woman 1984, did you see it? I didn't know. I didn't want to see it. No, but it's basically like she she wishes for Chris Pine to come back to life or something. And he just takes it inhabits another man's body. Like he, like they, we see Chris Pine, but when he looks in the mirror, it's another dude and then they have sex and they're kind of like, so they just basically like he, they use this dude's body to have unconsensual sex. And they're like, kind of saying like, it's a body flip thing, like from uh, the eighties. And I'm like, Oh my God, dude, that's not, why not just, but make also it Chris like, Pine's why would again? that, it's so easily avoidable, but also like, why should that be in a wonder woman movie? I have no like, idea. This isn't some Dude, cheeky you should watch 80s the pitch comments. video. But repping Screen Rat's pitch video, <laughs> you should watch the pitch video for it because they start asking all these questions like, what happened to that guy's consciousness? Is he dead now? What happened to him? <laughs> <laughs> Did he have a family? <laughs> oh, so many flaws just like that with that idea. But yeah, 16 Candles is really iconic, but that I didn't think going into it, those two scenes were going to be more of an issue. Whereas I don't remember, I didn't watch Breakfast Club this much, so I don't remember, but Breakfast Club's probably his magnum opus, like I think his best film. Um, For sure. Although then you think of like Ferris Bueller's Day Off or Home Alone, it's so hard to pick, man. It is. More your personal favorite at that point. But Breakfast Club also, it's all white teenagers, so there's really no, they can't, they can't, and it's only the four of them and the principal, so they can't really like do anything overly bad. I mean, and they're all in I detention. Think, I think, yeah, yeah. Safe space. Yeah, there's nothing overtly, like, out of date or bad in there, besides maybe, like, 
the like the whitewashing. It would be more accurate to probably just diversify that high school because high schools aren't just all white kids. Fair. I, they get away with it in the sense that it's just four students who got Saturday detention. But yeah, I, exactly. I, do, I do get your point, though. Yeah, I mean, I mean, at my like at my high school, that would have been pretty normal. But I mean, yeah, I don't know. Right. I don't know. That one really just holds up for me. I really enjoyed that one. It also just has um, a great character I haven't development. Seen it in a long time. Yeah, the change between it's just such an, a nice idea to have like, which again is in all these John Hughes movies. It's like people of different backgrounds coming together to understand that they're just all kids going through the same types of bullshit. And the thing that John Hughes does so well is just takes all their bullshit seriously because kids feel like they're not being heard by adults. Right. Right. And so for adults watching these movies, it's nostalgic because we can remember feeling those things. But for kids watching these movies, like finally, like I can relate so much, no matter mm -hmm. what generation you are. Um, and he does a great job of just kind of breaking down the barriers of like that bullshit, like in some kind of wonderful you know, like it's popularity versus like losers. And then they come together and understand each other, even in weird science in the weirdest of ways that happens. <laughs> um, but does, does it really happen any, any, uh, anywhere better than breakfast club? Cause like it's, right. it's within the span of a day, they become best friends. Like you believe when they come out of that detention hall, that even if they don't ever hang out again in high school, they'll be friends for life. Mm -hmm. Like they'll come back after they're like years away or moving away into new lives and want to be together. Kind of like the fucking losers club in it or something. Right. Minus the gangbang. Um, yeah. Jesus Christ, man. I, when I read up about that, I thought, what the hell is this? Seriously. Oh, but one, one thing just going disgusting. back to some kind of wonderful that I do really like is with Keith's character about how like, you know, outside of the main premise of him trying to impress the popular, allegedly rich girl, he's also dealing with problems at home with his dad putting so much pressure on him to go to college. And like, his, you know, that classic high school and college pressure of like your parents trying to make you do what they couldn't do or like be on the right path and all that. But that doesn't always mean it's your path. And I like the fact that he eventually just caves in. And yells at his dad saying like this is not what i want i want to do what i want to do and, and yeah it was just a really like i don't know refreshing moment in the movie and especially for keith's character where he thought he was kind of one note for the most part with focus on this date but there there was much more to him than that yeah i guess the counter thing to that though is i don't like that the the dad-son relationship was just so one note you know i prefer stories that make it more complicated between family dynamics because families aren't simple like that. It's not just a one note the whole time. And it could depend on your dad though. Like if it could know. depend on your dad, that's true. Or maybe mom. because it's older, maybe because it's older, I see it as cliche now, even though it might be one of the like earlier ones to do it. If that makes sense. I watched Jaws mm -hmm. with my friend over the summer and like, he just is like, it's so cheesy. And I'm like, it's the first blockbuster. It's there was no cheese, <laughs> you know, like you can't, this invented fucking this was cheese, a cow bro. that hasn't been milked yet <laughs> yeah this was the dude that decided like oh i think that's gonna produce some good milk that's the first dude <laughs> the milk and udder right there and he produced jaws no mm, but so maybe that's the case maybe that's the case like with these movies too that 
some of the things I come out thinking they're cliche or just one noted, like the dad relationship, but it's because it's something we see a lot of now in like teen movies. Like mm. most of the time it's, it's this like, it's most of the time going to be they're at odds about something, whether it be college or something else. And then they come to understand each other towards the end because the kid stands up to him. Right. Well, maybe I wasn't as blown away by that part. Yeah, it was just it was different for John Hughes, though, because like a lot of a lot of his movies don't really incorporate that with the exception of like the vacation movies, because it's a whole family. But there's never really like many moments where it's like the the kids and their parents interacting for the sake of like building or like changing their bond. It's more like just mm-hmm. situationally based or something like, hey, honey, are you coming to dinner? No, I'm going to a party. OK, bye. This time around, it was more serious than that. Yeah. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Good point. We're not even talking, touching upon vacation, dude. Well, let's, if I'm let's get into it. The- oh, God. I mean, I don't really have any big thoughts on it. I, that's the only one that Luis watched, and I think it turned him off for the whole month. Because it's just so dated. It's it just is. so dated. And it didn't, it's not, it doesn't hold up. Like I would argue Caddyshack holds up pretty well. Um, Definitely. uh, Animal House holds up pretty well, but this doesn't hold up. Like this didn't, I didn't have a single moment where I thought it was actually funny. Yeah. The, um, the only part that I still find funny is when they're, when they enter East St. Louis and Clark's looking for trying to find, figure out where to go. And he just like, Ask these guys on the street, like, hey, how do I get to the highway from here? And they go, man, fuck your mama. And he goes, thank you very much. And, wrote, and just goes <laughs> back in the car. Like, that's really funny. But so many things about um, it are just either like, they're very obnoxious or they're just like tone deaf. I think what kind of bothers me about it is it's, it, well, it doesn't bother me, uh, but it, what made it not funny is all the jokes are telegraphed. Telegraph, meaning like you see them a mile away, right. you know, like when he brings his car in right from the beginning, he brings his car in and he's going to get it traded out and it's not the right car. And then you see like, well, I want my car back. Well, of course, like your it's car's crushed. not going to be able to come back. It's crushed. And then him, like the added thing of him trying to open the door is just like stupidity at its unfinest. <laughs> if you ask me, it's mm-hmm. not doing it well, yes. or at least that type of, that type of like concept that irreverent concept of just taking things so ridiculous has evolved to include things like the hangover and judd apatow films and they just do them in such a way that it it just evolved too much at this point it's kind of like trying to watch an action movie from 1930s or something and seeing if that's going to hold up with john wick or the marvel universe you know it just doesn't do it for sure yeah you can you can argue that the vacation movies are especially this one in particular are like a blueprint for that type of comedy because it is national lampoon and they were certainly the blueprint for that type of like raunchy irreverent type humor Uh, but again like animal house another national lampoon film still holds up same with caddyshack yeah caddyshack too i don't know i don't know why this one just doesn't i think it's just because it's a lot of physical chevy chase humor that's i don't know i I honestly i can't tell you i i think it's because the jokes are too stupid they don't hold up the stupidity doesn't hold up whereas like when i watch caddyshack the stupidity is still really funny to me yeah or it's, it's at least involved to be something new right about the delivery and like what's being done because like 
Did you ever hear that Bill Murray, um, that Bill Murray anecdote about when he met the Dalai Lama? Yeah, it's in the Caddyshack. No, in real life. Oh, in real life. met the Dalai Lama. Uh, I feel like I have. Okay, supposedly, supposedly, what happened was he asked the Dalai Lama if he's ever seen Caddyshack. Oh. And the Dalai Lama goes, no, 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 never saw it. And then while they're taking photos later, like for publicity, he just leans into Bill Murray's ear and just goes, Dunga Garunga. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, if the Dalai Lama has that type of sense of humor, oh my God, that's, that's honestly why that joke still works because it's so, it's just so silly. Yeah. It's just so, it's so, it's silly in the right way. For sure. You know? Man. Oh man. That's like my favorite part of that movie. Oh yeah. Bill Murray is just, he's a show stealer. In that one, that and when when Chevy Chase is putting like crazy and making oh, yeah. all the putts, and he's just going, I love that one too. But yeah, going back to a uh, vacation, they just another thing that always that definitely it's one of those where like a lot of the humor going back to like the humor on that, I can see it being like. You're in the you're, it's 1984. You're at the theater with like your parents or like your friends seeing this movie, and everything being done is it could have been fresh at the time, or just so ridiculous that you didn't know what else to compare it to that you thought it was laugh out loud hilarious. For example, like when they go visit cousin Eddie, and all they're eating, he's grilling hamburger buns, and they're having lettuce, tomato, and cooked hamburger helper mix. Not hamburger helper with like pasta or like a burger. Literally putting hamburger helper on grilled hot hamburger buns because of how like poor and redneck they were. And like it's very it's very outrageous and over the top that I don't think people would find it like offensive to those of lower class. But at the same time, like they might because it's just like because it's just it's two very contrasting families and lifestyles. And like Clark's did so disgusted you, did by I, it. Did did I tell you that I watched Vacation with Ed Helms? Mm-mm. Have you seen that? I didn't want to. The only good part is like, I think it's less. Is it Leslie Mann? Like uh, Judd Apatow's wife? I thought Christina Applegate. Uh, yeah, yeah. But so I think Leslie Mann's also in that movie. Let me just Google, Google that really quick. But anyways, regardless, it's. It's Christina Applegate, and she's going to visit her sister. And her sister is married to Chris Hemsworth. And yeah, it is Leslie Mann. And obviously, Leslie Mann and Chris Hemsworth have quite a big age difference, but he's really fucking rich. Like, so it's almost when I'm watching this, it's the exact opposite. He's just super rich, and like they eat really well fucking gourmet steaks and shit. And it's pretty funny. But the only part that I really like is everything's going for this guy. He's like a weatherman. He's got long, luscious blonde hair. Is there a man more attractive than Chris Hemsworth? And then he comes into their room at night to make sure that like they're okay. And like they know how the air conditioning works and TV works and everything. And he's only wearing boxers. Dude, this fucking guy has like a thermos, like a, like a coffee thermos in his pants, like in his boxers. It is just this insanely large penis and he's walking around and like making sh- and you just can't get your eye off of it it's oh my fucking God. massive oh, i actually think i've seen Apple that game. one scene 
Christina Applegate is fucking staring at it like crazy. And so is Ed Helms. And then Ed Helms is obviously oblivious. He pulls the Chevy Chase thing of like, oh, the joke is I didn't even realize he had a big dick. Like, that's not what I was looking at. But dude, it's hilarious. Like, he's like flaunting it and putting up a knee to tell them like how the fucking air conditioning works. And oh, my God, it's so large that I really wished it popped out. I would have really (laughs) dude hangs dong. I needed to see it. Gotta see it. Gotta see that didgeridoo. Oh my God. It was, that was the only thing in that movie that I thought was funny, but it's very much the same thing as like what the old vacation is, which to me is not the funniest type of humor. Like the Mm -hmm. only one to do that irreverency super well and be ridiculous in the same style as like hangover. But other than that, I'm not like a massive, I need something with a bit more depth to it to be funny. Yeah. I feel you. My favorite comedies, you know, are like, um, all the Martin McDonough stuff. Right. Seven psychopaths makes me cry laughing. Oh my like, God. I think it's hilarious. Too funny. Yeah. Or something so stupid that it, it circles back around to smart. Like Pluto Nash. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like Pluto Nash. Pluto Nash, that gem of a film. Oh yeah. We're going to dedicate a two hour special to analyzing that film. One of these days. I think that, I think we should just do your idea and write sequels and then perform them on the podcast as like radio plays. So we can do like, you should write a horrible sequel. Of Pluto Nash, I have the idea. to go to Mars to fight Bruno Mars. Yeah. His, his cousin, Bruno Mars. We can Mars. do it. Stay tuned for our next podcast featuring Brian Riley as writer and narrator of Pluto Nash 2, Electric Blue Boogaloo. <laughs> Pluto Nash 2. No, that's 2, a horrible title. The um, Man on Mars. Mars Attacks. Mars Attacks. <laughs> uh, Get Jack Nicholson to play president again. <laughs> Combined all these movies. Now, nah, but Vacation was definitely the least, the least enjoyable of these movies. And I swear to God, it's why Luis got turned off of doing this 80s shit. He was like, dude, this is like when my dad was born. Like, I know you got young parents, but come on, dude, they're not that old. Yeah. And I think Vacation made me realize they are pretty old. Yeah. I mean, I don't blame him for that. But at the same time, like he should have at least looked up the descriptions of the other films because you could tell right away how vastly different they all are from this one movie. Mm-hmm. Although another yeah, another gripe I have, baby. another gripe I have with this real quick that I, I noticed, I didn't know, know it when I first watched this movie, but watching it again, I picked up on it is that Clark Griswold who's supposed to be a middle class working man, you know, they, they're they're well off, but they're not like loaded, not in mansions or anything like that. He's wearing a Saint Laurent polo throughout most of the movie. And yeah, you told me this. Yeah. And that is like a luxury brand. Rappers rap about it. They're always wearing it. It's like very much so like a one percenter type um, style or like clothing brand to have like luxury brand. And he's out there wearing it. And I'm supposed to believe that this guy is some like middle class dude who wants to go on a road trip with his family. If you're wearing Saint Laurent. You're putting your kids in a doghouse and like watching sports alone. Like you're not, you don't want to hang out with your family. Yeah. As far as family comedies go of like the eighties and stuff, vacation was definitely not my thing, but I will say a TV show that I want to rep to this day being hilarious was married with children. Oh yeah. Somewhat kind of reminded me of this type of stuff, but it was just way better. And that holds up. That is so unbelievably funny to me. Mm -hmm. Actually, Ed O'Neill did do a, john hughes film i never saw it it's called yeah he did dutch the dutch, dutch. yeah i know dutch i've seen parts of it actually ed o'neill in wayne's world kills me oh my god i the, forgot he, he was like, in that 
Yeah, he just plays the most ridiculous, like, <laughs> the hamburger milkshake waiter, and it's so funny. Oh, man. My my dad was All telling me. All these references now. My dad was telling me, um, I was talking about, like, John Hughes a few weeks ago, and he told me that he saw an interview with Ed O'Neill regarding John Hughes, and he said that they, when they did Dutch together, you know, the first time they ever met or like hung out or anything like that, they became really good friends. You know, they basically felt like they were best friends on set after the movie. Never heard from John Hughes again. And apparently that was a common thing with him, with John Hughes. Like after the movie's done, like he'd go dark, like people wouldn't hear from him. That's weird. Very weird. wonder why. I mean, it is kind of like a summer camp, like working on film sets. When I first started on it, it's crazy because you get really close really quick. You spend almost every day together. And if you're filming on location, you're really like on set all the time. Like you're in hotels with each other, you know? Right. Um, But that goes away quick. It's really fast because as soon as you're, you know, out of that, you you swap into a new set and it happens again. And you think you're going to stay in contact with everyone, but you never really do. Um, But like he's he reached out and like never never heard that's weird that's that was maybe more to send, that's what i meant by going 80s. dark he couldn't, he couldn't he couldn't text i mean i guess he had to write letters or send an owl um <laughs> so owl, I yes. say. the one movie that i wanted to give it another shot because if i'm honest i didn't pay much attention to it was she's having a baby and i like the themes of it it seems much heavier for a john hughes film like it's Definitely. the it's the only one that i think would contradict my statement that he's a storyteller not married to his words because this one seems very particular on what was being said. Yeah, definitely. It, it was. Um, but at the same time, like, it's one of those movies, and especially for an 80s movie, it does it really well, where it does those, um, those cutaways to showing you like, the, the mentality or like, the psyche going on inside of Kevin Bacon's um, head as he's dealing with all this stress to try and be like that perfect family with his wife that he married young and trying to live up to all these other people's expectations and like what goes on in his head. And I always like when movies or shows do that because I can always appreciate it. And when it's done really well, well it's, it's done really yeah, well. And, and I, it's, I thought it was done this, really well on this one. No, I agree. And I think the thing that I really enjoyed about it past that is what, what I think you're saying and what I really enjoyed about it was it complicates the relationship. Yes. It makes it really, um, in, it's really in depth. It's not just saying they have a good relationship or a bad relationship. It's not the dad and the son from she, um, some kind of wonderful. It's a complex relationship between push and pull and like liking certain things about it, but also not always wanting everything about it. And that's kind of like a relationship, you know, like sometimes you can't the really, you can't live with it and you can't live without it sometimes. And I think people say these types of I don't know, metaphors or, you know, sayings, and they don't really break down what that means. But this movie is really trying to show that, like, you know, how sure. he doesn't not want to be married to this woman, but it's also not like heavenly bliss all the time. It weirdly reminded me of the same feelings I get watching Eternal Sunshine, like a lot hmm. of conflict within the character for what he's doing, you know, whether it's the right choice or the wrong choice and using a lot of like cutaways and like dream sequences to like, showcase his subconscious which is a great technique to showcase what he's feeling via something really kind of almost uncanny or ridiculous right and like yeah if you didn't do that it would just be exposition of him like talking to a neighbor like alec baldwin being like 
yeah, I can't stand this anymore because of this and that, and which would be stupid. Yeah. And I like at the end, he writes that letter and he has that, like, he comes to the conclusions of like what having, I think they did a really good job of like what having a kid really might do to you. Cause you always hear about having a kid kind of like changes your whole perspective of everything. You know, my then, cousins just had a kid and I don't hear from her anymore. <laughs> wow. They have a baby now, you know, it's their whole life. Right. So. Yeah. But you um, know, there's, there's always that talk where like, you know, couples will have a baby to save the marriage. And this time, this time around, and this one, like maybe you could think that that was the case, but it wasn't intentional to get pregnant. Um, and that's what happened, but they're married. And wasn't they- it her intention to do it? Shouldn't she try? Oh, wait. Yeah, you might be right. I thought that was the case. She, no, I think she like intentionally tried and he freaks out about right. it. Right. Yes, like, yes, yes. You're right. You're right. You're right. My bad. Um, Bro, did you even watch the movie? I did about <laughs> over a month ago. <laughs> Uh, I know we're a little, but yeah, but like, so they were on two separate levels. They both wanted to be married to each other. She wanted a kid. He wasn't a hundred percent sure she ends up getting pregnant. So you just kind of like, you watch him trying to deal with that stress. And again, it wasn't like they were in turmoil where having a kid was going to save them or anything like that. Like that whole like fake concept. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it, like you just said, having the kid. It's one of those, like, you don't need words. You just need to see his expression. Once the kid's born and she recovers and he sees the baby, he has, you can tell in the look in his face is very genuine that he is like, he wants this. This is what he wanted. He was scared, but now he's not. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely what I realized watching it was it's a movie you have to pay attention to through and through. Cause if you take your eyes off of it for a second, the mood changes so quickly that you're like, did I miss something? Because right. there can be a moment where they're not, where he's not anxious and like they're very in love and like painting and laughing and, and kissing and he's going to work and they're having a happy, like young marriage life. And then the next moment he's dreaming about having his baby in the, in the, the office with him and freaking out or like, you not you know, feeling lost um, right. or attracted to other people. And if you just took your eyes off of it, it's such a quick change. It really shows mood swings quite well. Cause I think everyone goes through that, especially in like new environments like you at one moment can be really happy and then the next other moment you're like what happened like where is this coming from right now yeah i think they kind of nailed it it's the one that i'd want to give another chance you definitely sure. should i, I recommend I did, it i, I think it's an un, it's lose, an overlooked like, and underappreciated john hughes movie what were we saying yeah for sure i agree man no, no, I was saying, I was just going to say it's something that I did ebb and like kind of come in and out of a little bit. I didn't really watch it fully through. And that was, I wish I did actually, but, um, I, I don't want to give it another chance because, because of that, because me falling out of it actually made it a little bit more difficult to understand, which made me really feel like this movie is trying to actually say something. And it was again, maybe one of John Hughes's more kind of emotionally driven, important films. Right. Very different for him. And apparently it's considered a semi-autobiographical. No way. Mm -hmm. And I do say Kevin Bacon, when he puts the glasses on, does kind of look like John Hughes. So I can see see that connection. Oh, man, we didn't even touch into the cameos at the end. People should watch that movie just for the cameos. Oh, my God. Seeing young young Woody Harrelson and Ted, uh, Ted Danson... Going right, right back to the Cheers days, baby. I, know, I like, love that, that was that awesome. Stuff. 
And John Hughes is oh, in it too. Man. Yeah, and uh, the kid uh, Wesley Crusher from Next Generation, which I'm watching right now. It was like a blast just to see all those cameos. <laughs> it's very, very cool. Um, Magic Johnson. Uh, there's yeah. If anything, Candy, that's the one course. I recommend this month. Yes, for sure. That's the one. From if you're gonna pick one, you should go watch that one for sure. I agree. Um, yo, bro, do you want to hear my my picks for next month? Because it is my month. Oh yeah. Oh, well, before we get to that, one one last thing that we didn't touch on that has always confused me, um, and I've never bothered to ask anyone from that era about it. But in all these '80s high school movies, all of the uh, popular or like rich kids always wear sport coats, and it really confuses me. <laughs> Thank like, who? You. The, what teenager would wear that? <laughs> I've never I know, seen because that. if anything, I mean, if anything, the combination of casting people that look way too old to be high schoolers and then putting them in sports coats <laughs> is not a good idea. As no. in like, dude, watching, um, oh man, why is his name escaping me right now? Um, guy from Blacklist and Stargate. Oh, James Spader. Um, James Spader. Watching James Spader in um, Pretty in Pink, right? That's the one he's in. Yep. Man, all the John Hughes films just blend together after a while. But uh, watching James Spader in Pretty in Pink and then watching Kevin Bacon and she's having a baby. I'm like, dude, these fucking guys are the same age. And then you find out like, yeah, fucking James Spader's like 26, 27. And he's I wearing know. a fucking sports coat. It's so bizarre. Like, like, why, why acting, do they look like I'm going to be 40? acting quite soon. <laughs> I'm going to be acting quite soon. I got to be two years younger than what I actually am. And I'm going to actively not wear sports coats because that's not going to help. I don't know. I don't know, man. I think I think 20, uh, 23 year old, you would be wearing sports coats. Maybe. Actually, now we can write award winning, uh, award winning actress as our lead role. True. Shout out to Emily Zisco Shout for out. winning uh, best uh, actress in a comedy genre at the what was it? The Austin Comedy Film Festival or something like that. Yes. Well, she won particularly. Yeah. For a comedy role. I think it is it just the then it must be just the Austin Film Festival. Well, oh, maybe okay. we should cut this out. It's very sloppily done. This part, yes. nah, we'll never get. We never cut anything. This is just that we piece together all of this. But yo, so I haven't actually been able to decide on what I want to do for this month. Ooh. I had a couple ideas in my head, um, but you're gonna have to help me with them because I'm not really sure. Okay, which one sounds the most fun? Um, so the first thing I thought of was an Oscars month, but I think we're actually kind of too far past that because we'd have to get it, you know, watch them all and get them out before the Oscars, which I don't think is going to happen. No, isn't that like um, next week or this week? Yeah, no way. We're too late now. I, I don't think it's going to work. Um, then I, for some reason thought like Tom Cruise movies, but hear me out as to why, <laughs> because that man has spanned 40 years of making movies and barely aging, which kind of just interests me. Like True. when did risky business come out? That's an eighties movie, isn't it? It is. It is definitely an eighties movie. 1983. So his, his career spans 38 years and he's nearly 60 years old. And I just he's think almost like, 60. Damn. Dude, he's born in 1963. Huh. He's almost 60. It's my dad's he's age. still doing. He's still doing Mission Impossible movies as if he's our age and probably could beat the crap out of me or you. So I was just kind of, I'm always been like kind of fascinated by him. So I thought maybe we could just watch four movies of his time that we haven't seen 
because he's also look, he's like kind of a action star now and not doing anything of like real note, but you can't forget movies like Magnolia or Rain Man or um Jerry Maguire. Jerry Maguire, um Wall Street wasn't no, that's uh no that, that's not him. Mm-mm. Sorry, Wall Street was uh it was Charlie Sheen. But my point being is Tom Cruise has a career that spans like Hughes style movies with risky business to beautifully made films. Um Eyes Wide Shut. Oh. I mean like like and then now just like action movies, which right. are great action movies, but just just action movies. It's so, so you, that, you'd think be it'd be the opposite, right? Because he's getting older, but now he's only doing action movies. That that does not make sense. I think sense. it's because it I think it's because when you get older, you kind of want to make sure no one thinks you're old or something. Like he wants to prove he can still do it. I wish he would just once in a while still do good films. I think of like Johnny Depp and Johnny Depp. Mission Impossible films um, are good. No, I don't mean bad. I'm sorry. Good is the wrong way, but not just action. Mission Impossible is great, but I want to actually see him acting. Mission Impossible is more like a thrill to watch him do crazy stunts. But I'm right. not actually going to that movie because I think he's killing the acting, right? Right. Um, and I kind of think the same with Johnny Depp sometimes. Like Johnny Depp, who's got some crazy shit going on in his life right now that I don't want to get into. Mm-mm. But for a long time, he was just doing those Pirates movies or like the Alice in Wonderland films. And I think it was such a waste on a guy who clearly had a lot of fucking raw talent. Like you watch him in... in um black mass and regardless of what you think that movie was like his performance is just crazy oh i really like that movie. Um, he, did, he did great in that yeah he did a great job in that but anyways so we're getting off track again i thought either tom cruise movies which would be eh, not the best month but it would be more like just tom cruise is the theme or um we watch all of our guilty pleasures from the karen twins website Huh. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Uh, let's see. You know, it's funny. I think. I think the only guilty pleasure I've seen. Well, actually, that's not true. OK, so I haven't seen yours. I haven't seen Simon's. And I haven't seen Emily's. But now I've watched The Time Machine, which. Really sucked. And I've seen Coming to America course which is great and then i've seen mine obviously pluto nash wait a minute who is this coming to america jaspers what yeah it makes no is sense this guy what is this guy on that's like what, saying what like high expectations pleasure. does he have that what movie is too hell? good that's like saying that's like saying my guilty pleasure is tropic thunder like that's not a guilty pleasure dude that's a, a, a nominated film <laughs> like yeah um although this is very funny actually if we did if we did a guilty pleasures month it's essentially just an eddie murphy month <laughs> yeah three people featuring, eddie murphy featuring twilight and mr bean <laughs> oh my god oh man emily's is twilight yep i've never seen it me either i've I've had no desire to. Yeah, okay. I think here's what we'll do, because it'd be kind of funny. And we right now, KT Productions and our friends are working on some pretty heavy stuff and we're pretty busy. So maybe watching a plethora of bad movies besides coming to America for some reason is part of the list. 
um, might be good for us because then we can just trash on each other's favorite films and it might make some interesting conversation Yeah, because obviously there are guilty pleasures. So we know they're bad, but we also kind of love them. That's the whole point. Like, I don't care how bad people think Beverly Hills Cop 3 is. I love watching Eddie Murphy run around an amusement park and have to take down security guards. Sounds amazing. Yeah, I haven't seen any. I have not seen any of the Beverly Hills Cops. I I started to watch the first one and I fell asleep, not because it was boring. I was very tired and I never went back (laughs) to it. The first one's amazing. But okay, so then the guilt, the guilty pleasures month. So that's going to be Beverly Hills Cop Three, Adventures of Pluto Nash, Twilight. What was Simon's? Mister Bean. Mister Bean. Um, and maybe we'll skip Time Machine and Coming to America because one of them is amazing and the other one is no, apparently no. just that you, bad. You, you have to. I watch the Time Machine. You got to watch it. Okay, fair enough. Then it's five movies. Um. Also, for anyone, uh, for our listeners, not for anyone listening, for our listeners, we're going to come up with a better way to make sure that everyone can keep track of the movies we're watching for the month, not just having to listen to an hour just <laughs> to hear the movies. We'll find ways to post about it. Um, cool, man. This was kind of interesting. This was just me and you talking for an hour. I'm not even going to edit it, honestly. I'm going to put it directly up. Yeah, why not? Oh, actually. So it's not. So Mr. Bean is a british sitcom uh obviously it's the same same character uh, it's rowan atkinson right same same character but the movie is just called bean so you know okay if you, if you have issues finding it if just simon know. means the whole series we'll just watch the movie and get the gist yeah also get this the budget for Bean the movie 18 million and it made 251.2 million in the box office pretty good See, for a guilty I, pleasure yeah, this is the same with Twilight. It killed it. I think really the guilty pleasures list is just mine and yours. Like ours were bad movies. I think and it's the time notorious machine. that <laughs> yeah, time machine. It's notorious that Avengers of Pluto Nash made, was made for a hundred million and made to date seven million. And I like to tell everyone this all the time, but a definite proportion of that, like a portion of that seven million, was due to me and Brian because we love that movie. So. <laughs> Everyone needs to know that when you see that 7 million, a significant percentage was because we like it. Yep. We both own the DVD. So. I own a t-shirt and I, I bought a poster. <laughs> <laughs> you're right, welcome, Eddie well, Murphy. Um, yeah, you're welcome, man. <laughs> um, all right, dude. Well, then we'll do it in a month, right? Back in, uh, in May. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Cool, bro. Let's watch some shit. Yeah, it'll be good. All right, bro. See ya. Bye.